So our, our fundamental belief as a church is that, um, and that what drives kind of our worship culture is that God goes where he's wanted. So I want you to think about that. God goes where he's wanted. And the way that one of the ways that we indicate to God, I'm now seeing who's in the room and understanding why we were clapping, by the way. So I see you. Um, um, one of the ways that we express to God that we want him to come is by worship. Okay. And, and, and worship becomes this um, dynamic experience, whereas we lean in, God leans in, we lean in, God leans in. And so what we're driving after as a church is a regular encounter with the tangible presence of God. So um, if it got a little hot in here or you're new to our church, what the heck is going on? Celebration, clapping, singing, shouting, like these are natural responses to the presence of God. Okay. And so this isn't weird, it's weird, but it's normal weird, okay? So let me pray, all right? So Father, our, our desire is to have an encounter with you today. Um, we want to be people that say we want you here, we want you in our lives. And uh, so as we just continue to lean in through the preaching of scripture, as we lean in through worship and communion and prayer, Lord, we just ask and we just say with our hearts that we want you here. Uh, and we want you in our lives, and we want more of you. And so we would ask that you would just come, Holy Spirit, and lead in this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. you got to name what's happening in the room, okay, when we're, when we're leading things, and uh, that's what we try to do. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 25, Leviticus 25, as we near the end of our celebration series. So I'm excited that that level of celebration is what's happening in worship as we're near the end of this series. This is a, a quote by the leader of the band Rend Collective. He says, joy is a spiritual discipline. We as a people are much more inclined toward negativity and cynicism. We don't find it easy or natural to pursue joy. And that's why God in his word actually commands us to celebrate. We come by a gospel we're celebrating before a celebrating king. We need to get down to the serious business of joy. We must wrestle for our blessing. We must fight for our joy. Over the last six weeks or so, we've been looking at a series of celebrations that God commands his people to undertake. In the Old Testament, God commands his people into these annual festivals, and in their intricacy... See, Kyle thought, oh, let's just preach on the festivals. That'll be easy. Wrong. Okay. In their intricacy, in their incredibly high demand on a person's time and resources, we have learned, if nothing else, that joy is, in fact, a serious business. In some ways, joy and celebration are far more serious than we would like them to be. So when we approach the kind of celebration that these feasts invite us into, 
celebrations of God's deliverance, his provision, his forgiveness, his promises, his presence, we find that joy is a serious business. The joy that we're offered, which Jesus says is a joy that will overflow, can leave us staggering, can leave us overwhelmed. And so we say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me and I cannot. Faced with incomprehensible, overwhelming, eternal joy, we back away. We lower our expectations. We go about with lesser celebrations if we celebrate at all, because we just can't imagine that kind of joy can really be ours. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Faced with infinite joy, we settle for lesser things because we're far too easily pleased. And yet in Leviticus 25, we find an invitation to a joy and celebration so radical, we, we can hardly believe it's true. And in the offer of that celebration and God's willingness to meet us in it, our half-heartedness really is revealed. Uh, there are two celebrations in Leviticus 25 that are, if nothing else, serious business. So let's look at Leviticus 25 together. Uh, to this point, we've covered a majority of the annual festivals and celebrations ordained to God's people. Uh, there is a weekly celebration lined out in Leviticus 23 that's called the Sabbath. There are annual celebrations like Passover, uh, in all, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Atonement, Booths. We didn't really cover Unleavened Bread or Trumpets too deeply. In Leviticus 25, we come up on two more. Uh, there's the, the sabbatical year, which is celebrated every seven years, and the jubilee, which is found in every 50 years. So let's, let's start with the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year is found in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to read it, but I just want to give you kind of a snapshot of what the sabbatical year is. On every seventh year, God commanded that the land would observe a Sabbath. So during the seventh year, the land would neither be planted nor worked. Planted, it's not planted, it's not worked, it's not pruned. Now, during the seventh year, you can harvest whatever may naturally grow in your field, but you don't get to store what it produces for the next year. Do you hear what I'm saying? So you're entering year seven, kind of knowing that you're living off of year six's harvest and whatever else uh, might happen. In fact, I have a little chart to kind of show you kind of the step of faith that would require. Because in year six, you would plant and harvest in year seven, the land would rest, and then in year eight, you would plant and harvest, which means in year eight, 
you're living off of pretty much what you harvested in year six with any of the extras that you got in year seven. Do you see the step of faith that we're talking about? We're talking about kind of two years without working the land. Now, by the way, this is good agricultural practice in hindsight. So the federal government to this day, since the Dust Bowl, the federal government pays farmers not to farm certain parts of their land. And, and I just indicate that that's to the dust, since the Dust Bowl, because this whole sermon is going to make those of you who voted Republican on Tuesday very itchy, okay? Because we're going to be talking about redistribution of wealth, all sorts of things. It's going to be fun. It's Socialism 101, and um, <laughs> except not, except not. So this is the sabbatical year, right? And it requires a really significant step of faith, right? To trust that everything you gained in year six is going to carry you through to harvest in year eight. But look at the good news that God gives them in verses 21 and 22 of, I, of Leviticus 25. Be assured that I will send my blessing for you in the sixth year so that the land will produce a crop large enough for three years. When you plant your fields in the eighth year, you will still be eating from the large crop of the sixth year. In fact, you will still be eating from the large crop when the new crop is harvested in the ninth year. Now, this actually applies a little bit to the Jubilee, but it, it also works for the, the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year lays the foundation for this other celebration. So remember, every seven years, you're just leaving the land undone. But then the year of Jubilee comes. So after seven sabbatical years, seven times seven on the 50th year, comes the year of jubilee look at leviticus 25 starting in verse 8 i'm just going to give you a little snapshot here verses 8 through 13 in addition the lord says you must count off seven sabbath years seven sets of seven years adding up to 49 years in all then on the day of atonement in the 50th year blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land that word for horn is yobel so this is the year of yobel jubilee right Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. This 50th year will be a jubilee for you. During that year, you must not plant your fields or store away any of the crops that grow on their own and don't gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. It will be a jubilee year for you, and you must keep it holy, but you may eat whatever the land produces on its own. In the year of jubilee, each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors. Now, when you're reading the Bible, the Bible feels really weird, and here's why. The Bible is walking up to a conversation happening that all of the people in the conversation know exactly what's happening, and you have no context for it. Okay, so that's why reading the Bible is tricky. So what I'm trying, what I need to do today is kind of unpack like what your inner ancient Israelite is thinking right now as it's hearing uh, this so that you can kind of understand what the year of Jubilee is doing. The year of Jubilee begins on the 50th year at the Feast of Atonement, and there are four features to the year of Jubilee. And the first is leaving the soil unplanted, canceling debts, letting slaves go, and each family gets back its original property. Now let me kind of unpack what each of those, those four mean. So first, leaving the soil unplanted, it's kind of like an extra sabbatical year, right? So on the year 49, I have a chart about this. So on year 48, you plant and harvest. On year 49, that's a sabbatical year, so there's no planting or working. You harvest whatever comes. Year 50, 
is the Jubilee year. So again, no planting, no working the soil. You just get whatever comes out. And then in year 51, you get to plant and harvest again. So that means, that means the harvest from year 48 really is going to get you to harvest of year 51. And that's really what that verse I showed you in 2021 and 22 is speaking to. That there would be such a large harvest in year 48 that you would still be eating it in year 51. Right? So that's one challenging big step of faith that comes with the year of Jubilee. The second big step of faith is that debts are canceled. If you're in debt, your debt is canceled. Now, in a Bronze Age society where there is like no such thing as insurance, right? Most, the average person is living from what we would call basically paycheck to paycheck or harvest to harvest. In that scenario, you are like one calamity, one accident away from debt, right? And debt isn't a luxury in this society, right? Debt is, there's no like smart debt, like I'm going to go into debt and buy this house, nor is there debt because like, oh, I went on a cruise, so I'm just going to pay that off my credit card for the next three years. Debt is kind of this bondage that is the natural consequence of a really, really harsh living condition. And Derek Tidball, an Old Testament scholar, says of debt that it is a major evil. I mean, if you read the Bible, it seems to talk about debt a lot as a really bad thing. It is seen as both debilitating and dehumanizing for those who suffer it, right? Now, in Leviticus 25, because there are so many different ways, there's, like, because it's so easy to fall into debt, like all you need is one bad crop and it's game over, right? Leviticus 25 outlines a number of ways that you could get out of debt, including selling yourself into indentured servitude, and we'll get there in a second. But in the year of Jubilee, which comes every 50 years, roughly once in a generation, there is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Everybody's debts on the 50th year are canceled. Right? But here's what's wild about the debt relief in Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25 pays no attention to how you got into debt. So, if a drought impoverished your family, or if your father fell and broke his leg and wasn't able to work again, and your family could never recover, your debt would be released once in a generation. But if your father was unwise with money or gambled it all away or drank it all away, instead of being dragged down for generations because of it, you could be set free once in a generation. Do you see how radical this is? It doesn't matter if your debt comes because you were lazy or foolish or because you were like of an unfortunate circumstance. Once in a generation, everybody is set free from poverty, which by the way, means that generational poverty exists only in the imagination. The poverty that we a, a lot that 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 we see a lot of here in Trumbull County is generational poverty. Right? Ben Carson got a like a, a whipping in the media a few years ago for saying poverty is a way of mind. It is a way of mind. It's a way that you learn to exist with less resources. And in a lot of places in our community it began back when all the steel mills shut down, you know, a few decades ago and nobody was really able to get out and so now we just have generation after generation after generation kind of living this way of life that can be kind of hard to understand if you're like middle to upper middle class, right? But what the year of Jubilee does is it makes generational poverty impossible. 
because there's a hard reset to the debt economy once every 50 years. And not only is there a hard reset every 50 years, all slaves are released. Now, you, we can go a lot of different directions with this. Let me just say this, that in cases of extreme poverty, you, an Israelite, you know, if after you've sold your land and after you've done this and you've tried all these ways, you might have to indenture yourself and slave yourself to a neighbor, right? Uh, and so Israelite slaves, which is, again, a lot more like indentured servitude, are released once in a generation. And we could have a whole sidebar conversation on the difference between chattel slavery as it took place in the Americas in the 19th century and, 17, and the 17th century, or we could talk about all these things. But the goal of it was you might sell yourself into slavery. But then what happens if that family goes into debt? Well, then they sell themselves and take you with them. And pretty soon the map of where everybody's living gets redrawn and everybody's enslaved to everybody else. And now some of the clans living in the promised land are kind of like the people that own the boardwalk in Monopoly, right? Like they've started to own an undue amount of the land, right? And so not only are slaves released every 50 years, once in a generation, all land is returned to its original owner. So, if Holden has come to own this significant portion of the land, right, he loses all of that land every 50 years. And he returns to owning only that parcel of land that he was given at the very beginning. When the Israelites entered the promised land, they were all allotted a certain piece of land. When the 12 tribes get in, the land is divvied up among the 12 tribes, and then each tribe divvied up their section among clans, and then each clan divvied it up amongst family members. And again, over time, you might fall into debt, so you might need to, I might need to sell my land uh, to Jennifer, and Jennifer might need to sell her land and my land to Sarah, and Sarah might need to sell her land to Kristen, and Kristen actually belongs to a different clan from a different tribe, and now it's all getting cut up. And once every 50 years, the land reverts back to its original owner, and everybody that is everybody gets to go home right because through the selling of your selling of yourself and the selling of your land you might end up living in timbuktu right but once every 50 years everybody gets back their original land everybody goes back home right it's starting to feel like the book of leviticus was written by like far left progressives right but this is not socialism and let me tell you why, right? So in capitalism, right, individuals own private property and I get to shoot you if you go onto my property, right? <laughs> Don't touch my stuff, thank you very much. In socialism, we all own everything, right? Like there is really no more th such thing as private property. And let me tell you what is actually different about and, and why the year of Jubilee works. In the land of Israel, there is no such thing as private property because Yahweh owns all of it right? He's the landlord. You're just leasing from him. So look at these verses um, from Leviticus 25 as it relates to this. So he says, the land must never be sold on a permanent basis for the land belongs to me. In the Jubilee year, the land must be returned to the original owner so they can return to their family land. Actually, I think that the year of Jubilee is an expression of far, is of far right politics and far left politics at the exact same moment. 
because not only is it a radical concern for the poor and a hard reset of the economy every 50 years in a way that kind of socialists would love, it's, it's also about the family unit, which is what the right would love, right? It's about getting family units back together once, every, once in a generation and giving them a fresh start. So taking together the four elements of the year of Jubilee, the land resting, debts canceled, slaves set free, property returned to the owners, this is a hard reset to Israel's economy. Now let me just guess what is in your mind. What is, what is rising in your mind is that this is absolutely insane. What is rising in your mind is that this is absolutely impossible. And you might not be wrong. Because as far as we can tell in reading the Old Testament, we have no record of the nation of Israel ever celebrating the year of Jubilee. Now, evidence of absence, you know, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence, okay? Absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence because we also never see them celebrate um, the Feast of Atonement. But I'm, I'm pretty sure they did that because if they didn't, God would have smited them all. So and there would have been nobody to write about it. But I think whether or not they celebrated it, we find rising in ourselves a sense of the impossibility of this kind of celebration. We find rising in ourselves, I'm a visionary, that's who I am. I have big ideas. And if I had a dollar for every time one of you tried to talk me back from one of my big ideas, you wouldn't need to give anymore, right? Um, and, and, I, and that feeling rises in me as I'm reading the year of Jubilee because it sounds way too good to be true. It sounds way too visionary. It sounds way too pie in the sky. There is a resistance that rises in us to the year of Jubilee, and I can only imagine, you know, the human heart hasn't changed much in 6,000 years. So I can only imagine that the resistance you and I feel to reverting all of your personal property to somebody else every 50 years is probably their resistance too. Which is why the year of Jubilee had to leap up, off of, leap up off of the pages of a calendar and become a person. It's why the year of Jubilee had to leap up off of the pages of scripture and become a person. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Look with me at Luke 4. Luke 4, starting in verse 14, is Jesus beginning his public ministry, right? This is Jesus beginning his public ministry. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power and reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Verse 16, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his hometown, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll 
handed it back to the attendant and sat down. That's what you do when you're done reading. You sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This section of Isaiah 61, scholars associate with the year of Jubilee. Captives will be released, slaves will go free. See what I'm saying? Jesus opens to a Jubilee passage. He opens this passage with Jubilee overtones. Jesus opens this passage and he says, Jubilee is now in session. Jesus opens the scroll and he says, Jubilee is now in session. Jesus' ministry is undeniably Jubilee-shaped and Jubilee-inspired. John Howard Yoder, for example, um, notes that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray a Jubilee prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I guarantee you that's what you're praying at the very end of year 50 at the start of year 51 while you're hoping for the crops to come in. Forgive us our debts as we forget our, forgive our debtors. The actual Greek word, you can, you can translate the word debts into transgressions, and that's typically how we pray here, but really the word that Jesus invokes there has financial overtones. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus teaches us to pray a jubilee prayer. Jesus' life was a jubilee life. What did he spend his days doing? He released the captives. He set the prisoner free. He caused the blind to see. And as Jesus cast out demons and set people free from the shame and guilt and power of sin and by the way, as Jesus fed the hungry and cared for the sick, Jesus activated jubilee. And this is vitally important for this reason. We do not believe Jubilee is for us. We don't believe that Jubilee is possible. And so what we do, we do what we always do when we are faced with joy upon joy. Life and life abundant. We lower our expectations. The biblically literate among us kind of do some sort of exegetical gymnastics to talk about why this is an ideal fulfilled in heaven and not now, or why only Jesus could do it, or, or why it's all spiritual and not material. We see this kind of celebration, we back away, because we're far too easily pleased. We assume that Jubilee isn't for us. It's just too much. It overwhelms. It staggers. We say with the psalmist, this knowledge is too much for me and I cannot. Our bodies healed. Our souls made whole. Our, our hearts set free. It's just too good to believe. So Jesus does what he does best. He steps into the impossible and makes it possible for us. He steps into what we believe is impossible, lives it out, and then makes it possible for us. See, here's the secret. Are you ready? Walking by faith is hard. 
Walking by faith is hard. I don't want to move the goalpost on you too much because I'm, I'm, I see new faces in the room. But like, to be honest, going to church is easy. Getting up in the morning, reading a little devotional is easy. Listening to Christian music while we drive is easy. Walking by faith is hard. And not that those things don't fuel our life of faith in an important way. I don't want to move the goalposts because that's a good entry point. But hang around Jesus long enough and you're going to find that what your eyes see and what Jesus says do not line up. And so we have to walk by faith. We're called to walk by faith. The gap between where we are and where God is calling us is always a step of faith. I mean, if, think, about, think about Israel, right? God said, this is where you are, and I want you to celebrate Jubilee. That's impossible. It is impossible to, what, let all of my indentured workers go? Who's going to work my field? But turn my property down to a fraction of what it is that I have this generational wealth that we have built? Cancel my neighbor's debt? I want that 10 grand back, thank you very much. So, and yet, here's the promise. There is no command given for which grace isn't supplied. And so the grace that is given in the year of Jubilee is when God says, listen, if you do this, I'm going to give you in the sixth year a harvest large enough to feed you well past the eighth. There's a grace there. And here we are, seeking to trust in the Lord's provision, trust that his promises are true. And some of us are kind of just beginning this life of faith and kind of just trying to feel out, like, is Jesus who he says he is? Like, is he someone that I can really trust? Not just with the small things, but with the big things, right? And the, there's this gap between where we are and what Jesus promises is a jubilee life. Jubilee is now in session, right? Healing, forgiveness, freedom, all of the things. And so when Jesus calls us to take this radical step of faith into the impossible, what he first does is he steps in and he lives the Jubilee life for us. Do you see this? Do you see Jesus living this Jubilee life? He says, I know all of this sounds impossible, but let me show you what it looks like, a, like to live Jubilee so I can show you that it's possible. The gap between where we are and where God is calling us, there's always a gap there. And the way that you cross that gap is with a step of faith. So what Jesus does is he like steps into the gap and he pioneers a way for us with his life and his death and his resurrection and his example to follow. He paves the way so that we can find our way into the joy of living jubilee every day. The kind of joy that jubilee envisions is possible. That's why Jesus promises us life and life abundant. And we just can't imagine that God is that good. We just can't imagine that the, that the step we take, that the sacrifice it will require, the submission it will require, the cost that it will take, we can't imagine that it's worth it. And so Jesus steps into the impossible for us. 
and very often grabs us by the hand to lead us into the next. The life of faith, the life of a Christian is a life of faith. It is a journey into jubilee. And so my question for you this morning is, what radical step of faith has God been calling you to take that you've been avoiding? Knowing that joy is on the other side, knowing that the goodness of God is on the other side, knowing that forgiveness and freedom are on the other side, what step of faith is God calling you to take? And I just want to assure you this morning of the goodness of God to give you grace to bridge the gap, to lead you to take the step of faith. But what radical step of faith into Jubilee is Jesus calling you to take? Are you struggling like with a health issue or maybe a mental health issue? And you've maybe gone back for prayer once or twice, but then you've stopped, right? One of the things that Steph and I committed to about a year ago was that every opportunity that we had to be prayed for to conceive with a child, we would take, right? Um, and that felt like a huge step and that gap felt like there was a lot of opportunity for disappointment, but we took the step of faith, right? Is there like a, a mental wellness issue that you've asked for prayer about, but you've just given up asking because it's not changing? right? Um, is there an area of breakthrough in your life financially? Is there an area of breakthrough in your marriage? Right? That just seems too big of a step to take, so you've just stopped taking steps to do it, right? And you know the step you probably should take. You know that you need to ask for prayer. You know you need to call a friend and say, I need to have a really honest conversation with you, or you know you need to say to your spouse, I think we both know that this isn't working, Is it a step of faith and grief? I mean, there's this step that Jesus calls us to take. And because we're too easily pleased, we'll kind of hang out on the shallow end of faith, hoping beyond hope that Jesus won't push us. Right? And on the one hand, Jesus won't push us, but he won't stop making the invitation either. And and, and, and the good news that I have for you today is that there is no command given. Jesus does not challenge us to take a step of faith without first giving us the grace to take it. Philippians says that it is God who works in you, giving you the desire and the strength to do what pleases him. Right? And some of us, the first step is just saying, I'm going to make Jesus like the center of my life for the first time. Some of us, it's the hobby that keeps me out of church, the thing that distracts me from following Jesus. I'm going to give that up. But my, my question for you this morning is that jubilee and joy have been offered to you. What step of faith are you hesitating to take? Um, Steph's going to kind of come and just lead us into that in prayer. Do you feel? Or, or, is, it, or is it Jenna? So whoever is doing response time this morning... I told you, our worst day. See what I mean? Like, listen. Okay, here we go.